back from vacation, back to this series. And this chapter, we're 12 verses into now, chapter 14 of Romans. This is why I titled this section of Romans, as we've been looking at Romans in sections, five of them by the time we're done with the book. Chapters 12 through 16, I titled, Easily Edified, Why the Doctrine of Love Matters. We've talked about doctrine of sin, we've talked about doctrine of faith, uh, etc. And now we talk about why the doctrine of love matters in these chapters. And we take this idea of being easily edified. To edify someone means to build them up. And we won't come to the word in this chapter until we get down to verse 19. So if you want to look ahead, if your Bible's open to Romans 14, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding is how the ESV puts it. But the word is for edification. In fact, the word also appears in chapter 15. If you look at chapter 15, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's also edification. So the the building up is not just an insider practice. It's also something that we take outside to our neighbors, those we share the world with, not just those we share the church with. Harold Best, uh, for many years, the dean of the music conservatory at Wheaton, which gave us Ken Boer. Harold Best is quoted as saying, a mature Christian is easily edified. And I love that. And I, I think that way of putting it summarizes well what we have here in chapters 14 on into chapter 15. A mature Christian is easily edified as opposed to being hard to edify because we're too particular, too prickly, or hardly ever edified because we uh, so separate ourselves into our own viewpoints, our own tribes, that uh, no one who's not just like us in thought, word, and deed can ever get to us to build us up. Remember back to verse uh, 10 in chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 10, those one-liners love one another. This is chapter 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Chapter 14 on into chapter 15 is, I could have said when we were in chapter 12, verse 10, just look at chapter 14 and chapter 15 for what this looks like, what this loving one another looks like through differences, permissible differences differences. What chapter 14 before us, the weeks that we're going to spend here, what it's not about is uh, staying in your lane, as people say nowadays. Or uh, let's all just uh, go along to get along. Or it doesn't really matter what you believe about anything. Uh, Yeah, it does matter what you and I believe about all kinds of things. But the real test of whether we love one another is when it comes to discovering differences among ourselves. When you have uh, a point of view or a practice or a conviction or an opinion about something that's different from mine and yet we're both in Christ, that's going to test whether we can still love one another through that. Permissible differences. Not all differences are of equal weight. There are matters we can debate with one another, but we shouldn't divide over. There are very few things worth dividing over. In my experience, most of the people who do that, most of the people who end up separating from other Christians, uh, seeking a, a purer church, 
perhaps, it's, it's because usually they don't know how to really distinguish core doctrines and permissible differences. Preferences, matters of conscience, uh, disputed matters. And then divisive people would be the worst case expression of this in that they usually become a hammer and everything looks like uh, a nail. Thankfully, those folks have been few and far between in my pastoral and church experience, but we all need this text before us, every one of us in the room, because we all have convictions, we all have opinions, we all have preferences. There are matters of conscience about things the Bible may not directly address, things the Bible may not decide for us, or things in the Bible but non-binding, such as uh, aspects of the Mosaic law for the church today. We're all saved by the same grace. Let's start there when we talk about this subject. We're under the authority of the same Bible, every one of us. We're accountable to one God. The text itself tells us this, but our unity in Christ is not a unity of sameness. There are permissible differences among us. And respecting those differences is what we're going to talk about today into next Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll come back to these same 12 verses. And the approach that I'm going to take for this Sunday and next Sunday is the same. I'm going to take three questions and put these three questions before us. And then this Sunday, today, and next Sunday, we'll just walk through these three questions and these same 12 verses. Here's the three questions. I get this from an article by a theologian named Roger Nicole. What do I owe the person who differs from me? Differences in the body of Christ are a given. This passage says so. So what do I owe the person who differs from me? Second, what can I learn from the person who differs from me? And then third, how do I cope with the person who differs from me? That's going to be our three questions. What do I owe? How do I cope? That's the third one, actually. And what can I learn? So, sorry, I got them out of order. What do I owe? What can I learn? And how do I cope? We're going to spend two weeks with these three questions, each sermon, And in each sermon, I'm going to take one answer for each question, and that will be our approach. But now before we get into these three questions, and I'll repeat them later, what's the issue in the text? John read the text for us, and what's all this about special diets and special days? Looking at verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything. Verse 4, or actually verse 5, one person esteems one day, verse 5, as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. What's going on in the original context? Well, the Roman church, like a lot of early first century churches, was made up of Jews in Christ and Gentiles in Christ, and Jews had a heritage with God. They had experience with God because of the law of Moses. Jesus came to fulfill that law, to complete that law. We're taught about that in Romans chapter 10, and he did so flawlessly. That's why the law is no longer a binding system. There's still things we learn about God and ways to relate to him through it, but it's not a binding system over the church, the the, the law of Moses. But kosher law, which you find in the law of Moses, the dietary restrictions, if you grew up Jewish, this was so ingrained in you 
that many Jews who, who met Christ came to, to Jesus still felt some obligation to keep kosher as well as festival days. There were certain days on their calendar that were set apart and were holy and you could and could not do certain things on those days. And for those Christians, Jewish Christians, if that was good for them, if that was the way that God had marked their people off for himself ancestrally, perhaps the Gentiles should do the same thing. Plus, if you're a Jewish Christian looking at Gentiles, you're noticing a lot of them came from pagan practices that were hideous. And so as a Jewish Christian, you want your Gentile brother or sister in Christ to, to really make a full break and come away from, from those things completely and totally as was your ancestral birthright as a Jew. This was a conflict in the early church. What can we eat? What can we not eat? What about food sacrifice to idols? What about keeping kosher law? What about this festival day? What about if I don't know anything about that festival day? Am I supposed to keep it? Is this day more holy than that day, really? If you're a Gentile, you don't think so. If you're a Jew, you do. These were points of tension and conflict in the early church. And Paul says, we're going to skip down now to verse 14. We just read the first 12 verses. We'll get to verse 14 in a couple of weeks. Verse 14 in chapter 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. In other words, if somebody's conscience is such that, you know, I can't do that. I'm not free to do that. You might be free in Christ to that, but I'm not free in Christ to that. Whatever the situation, Paul is teaching us here, we need to learn to respect this. He talks about this in Corinthians, but we're looking at it here in Romans. But note that he says here in verse 14, as a Jew and a former Pharisee, nothing is unclean in itself. And so Paul, even as he is giving with one hand, uh, respect to the person who does believe that with the other hand he's saying now wait a second this is a weakness Paul believes it's a weakness to see anything in itself as unclean why because it creates an unnecessary burden on faith in Jesus one who has completed the work for us who kept the law flawlessly you might think a, a parallel passage to this don't turn there just hear it Note it if you're taking notes. is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where Paul wrote this. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. Now look again at verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 14 of Romans. As for the one who is weak in faith, that, that is one who is burdened because they can't thank God for the thing they think is, is off limits for them, which, which God hasn't, hasn't uh, said that it, it is in Christ. One who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, not as a sparring partner. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables, and he goes on as the passage goes to uh, certain festival days is what he has in mind. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, don't bludgeon your vegetarian friend with this, please. You know, I heard some giggling when it was read. Your vegan kid who's trying out veganism, uh, don't take him to Romans 14 too. 
as if, you know, uh, you feel you're holiest at crystals, you know, as if uh, eating, eating meat is a sign of faithfulness to God. You see what's going on here, right? You see it. We all see it. Judgments were being made in this church over permissible differences. And where those judgments get made, some feel superior. They're on the right side of the dispute. And others feel put down. Well, that was the shape of the problem as it existed back then. With 2,000 years of church history from then to now, the problem has only spread and exacerbated. Because if, if you don't realize it, the evangelicalism that you live in, it's a free market. It's kind of all over the place. I mean, as evangelicals, our central governing authority is the Bible, but there are many Bible teachers. And there are many uh, expressions of evangelicalism uh, as, and particularly in a church like ours, where we come from different church backgrounds, no church backgrounds, different parts of the country, different countries, different sociological contexts. We're, we're even more uh, a free market uh, church. That's why sometimes when people say, what does First of Ann believe about this? I'll say, I don't know. What does First of Ann believe about this? You can go ask this one Sunday school class what they believe about it, and you'll get one answer. And you go ask this other Sunday school class, and that doesn't mean we're all over the map. We have a core doctrine that we hold to. Some questions that are asked, what does First of Ann believe about this? I'll say, well, our article of faith says this. But the article of faith is also remarkable for what it doesn't say. We don't decide on a lot of issues where we leave room for, for people's conscience and people to, to make their own conclusions based on biblical teaching. It's not like we're free market means you're just out there doing whatever. But there is core doctrine we all hold firmly. There's also at the same time this flexibility we practice in community with one another. And in this chapter, we get the why and the how of it here. We are to respect permissible differences. And look, that this instruction comes to us from Romans of all places, where you know Paul has spent 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters, painstakingly giving us orthodoxy, what we are to believe and cannot deviate from <clears throat> without corrupting the gospel as it's been received. Uh, and so this flexibility, it's, it's not flexodoxy, all right, that's a word coined from David Brooks, the syndicated columnist. He talks about the flexodox in one of his books who have this idea, well, I like that Scripture says this and this and this. I don't like these things, so I'm going to reject these things I don't like the scriptural teaching of, and I still want God. He calls that flexodoxy. I think it's a great term. The flexibility put upon us here is not flexodoxy. But it is a relational way of, of, of interacting with one another in the body of Christ with a set gospel that we all believe. We are all, each of us, saved by the same grace. We're under the authority of the same Bible. That's our doctrinal core, and we don't give any ground on that. But our unity in Christ is not a unity of sameness. There are permissible differences among us. Why? Because the Bible doesn't directly address every conceivable matter that we run into. The Bible doesn't decide for us on every matter that comes before us. And some of what's in the Bible, like the Mosaic Law codes, 
uh, it's no longer as a system binding on the church. We still learn who God is and what God wants from the law. The whole law is holy, righteous, and good. Where do we learn that? Romans 7. But we also saw in Romans chapter 10 what? Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness for all who believe. That is, in his flawlessly keeping the law, the law was fulfilled. The purpose for it now is to continue to teach us who God is and and what God is like. But there's these permissible differences. And simply put, what are they? What are permissible differences? If you're looking for a walking around definition of it, they are matters where the Bible, which we as evangelicals hold to be our highest authority because we take the Bible to be God's holy word, matters the Bible doesn't directly address or decide for us in our ethics, in our conduct, in our beliefs, those are permissible differences. Permissible differences are matters of conscience. They're matters of preference, where the Bible doesn't directly address the matter at hand, or the Bible has not decided for us where we are to land, and therefore we have a measure of freedom or we may not feel a measure of freedom. We may feel like we're restricted by, by something, and, but there's room to work through that, and we have to learn to respect that. So with this in mind, these three questions I posed earlier, I give them to you as rails on which to run our train of thought uh, this week and next as we look at these 12 verses, and really as we look all the way through uh, most of chapter 15 to come. What do I owe the person who differs from me? What can I learn from the person who differs from me? And how do I cope with the person who differs from me? Again, these are not my questions. I found them in an article uh, by a theologian and felt they were, they were good for us to, to interact with as well. So first, what do I owe? What do I owe the person who differs from me in matters of conscience, matters of preference, where I don't have a a direct word from God, thus shalt you do, thus shalt you not do, where the Bible hasn't decided the matter for me. I told you I'll give you one answer to these questions this week, one answer next week to each one when we come back to it. This week's answer from the text is welcome. (laughs) What do I owe the person who differs from me in matters of conscience and preference? Welcome. Look at it, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And he's used the word up in verse 1, as for one who's weak in faith, welcome him. Actually, down in chapter 15, verse 5, he'll turn it into a a benediction, 15.5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that you welcome one another. Down in verse 7 of chapter 15, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, welcome is not just for coming in the door. It's not just the friendliness that you greet someone with. Welcome is a practice of inclusion, practiced inclusion that seeks to close Whatever else may put distance between us. And why is this so important that he repeats it no less than three times in chapters 14 through 15? Because in Christ, we're both in Christ, the one you're welcoming, your brother or sister in the Lord, because we're both in Christ 
who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us is the foundation of our fellowship, not our particularized viewpoints or our scruples about things. Now, this, there's all kinds of challenges in this. We've got a few Sundays here to sort of work some of these out. Just getting you, uh, we're, we're just sort of wading into the, to the river here, as it, as it were. What do I owe the person who differs from me in matters the Bible doesn't directly address or decide for us, such as church music, uh, school choice, homeschool, private school, public school, no school? Well, that's, that's really not an option, the last one there. Uh, matters like voting or, or political party affiliation or uh, any range of social choices. You say, but I, wait a minute, the Bible does give us uh, direction on these things. The Bible does give us wisdom and principles. Absolutely it does, true. But matters of obedience to God. See, a lot of times we take our, our preferences and we turn them into matters of obedience to God. And matters of obedience to God are more precisely matters the Bible decides for us. Put another way, I would reserve the statement, I want to be obedient to God, to those things that I have a direct word from God about in the Scripture, not my subjective sense of it. Because if it's really a matter of obedience to God, then all of us are accountable to it. If you want to say, well, it's obedience to God for us to do it this way, this particular school choice or, or, or uh, voting this particular way, then, then what you're saying is if it's a matter of obedience for God for you, it's a matter of obedience to God for us all. It really is. Now, people who have strong opinions about certain matters of conscience and preferences, what Christians should and should not do, whether we should believe this, believe that, this and that area of life. People with strong opinions about matters of conscience, they will often argue, because they have strong opinions, that, but the Bible does decide that for us. And they'll begin to quote chapter and verse. And what they're doing is they're making a biblical case but making a biblical case for something is not the same thing as saying the Bible declares us do this. The Bible mandates that we all do this. God speaks through his word. It's really a fine thing to be convictional. It's recommended even. The rest of us are to respect your convictions. That's what we're being taught here. Just be sure when you have very strong convictions on matters of preference, debatable, disputable matters, matters of conscience, just be sure you're not going beyond what's written. And you haven't canonized your choices and you're jockeying with other believers for God's approval. Because what that ends up doing is restricting our welcome, our practice of inclusion, inclusion of one another which actually the Bible is deciding for us right here in this passage, we owe one another. So in other words, if, if you weight some opinion or point of view or preference or practice of yours with biblical authority and don't welcome those who don't see it or do it like you, that's actually disobedience to God. And none of us want that. But 
People will cite scripture when they're making the case for why everyone should vote a certain way, why everyone should educate a certain way, why everyone should foster or adopt children, why everyone should take mission trips, why everyone must live conspicuously modest and give away the larger percentage of our resources. But I say again, making a biblically informed case is not the same thing as declaring something an actual matter of obedience to God. Because when you make a biblically informed case, there's a lot of your own reasoning in it. And we just have to be honest about that. There's a lot of, well, this seems right to me. You know, the position papers that our elders write, you can access them on, online. Those position papers are written in a spirit of, it seems right to us. Here's a disputable matter. Here's an issue that comes up where Christians want direction. And as elders, that's what we give. That's part of our spiritual oversight of the church. And so in those papers, we've tried to write them in a spirit of, here's what seems right to us. Here's where it seems the preponderance of, of, of biblical instruction we have on this topic would lean us in this direction, would point us in this direction, would aim us in this direction and away from this one or that one. There's, there's a, a spirit in that of, of trying to respect where, where we land and have different, different places sometimes. Again, not all differences are equal. But to make a biblically informed case is not the same thing as declaring this matter is actually about obedience to God. And therefore, if you don't land on the side where I am, uh, you're in disobedience to God. That, that's the hallmark of fundamentalism. If it is a matter of obedience to God, we all have to do it. So matters of obedience to God, I, I prefer, we say, that those and reserve that for matters where Scripture directly addresses us to do and be and not here and there, ethics, conduct, beliefs, from which applications can be varied. But then scripture does make some decisions for us about ethics and conduct and beliefs. And in those areas, we're not permitted to see or do it differently. I think you follow me here. But you know, we still quarrel over opinions. This phrase in verse 1. Especially the stronger our convictions over permissible differences. It's, it's like we're jockeying for God's approval, the way I've seen this play out sometimes. When you see two Christians arguing about something and you're realizing, you know, it's not like the Bible directs you on this particular matter, but they're arguing passionately for and against. And, and it's this jockeying for God's approval over and against one another sometimes. And why? Why do we do that? Because God's approval comes to us not because we're scrupulous, but because only Jesus Christ was fully approvable to God. That's how you get it. But see, a lot of times we think like the early Jewish Christians, particularly in the free market of evangelicalism, where, where you land on an issue may really irritate me. I don't like that you let your kids do that, and, and, and I don't like that you go there or that that freedom is yours, etc., and so on. And, and what happens is like the early Jewish Christians lifestyle choices we make, tribes we join. If this is good for us, if this feels faithful to me, it ought to be what everybody else does. Stop it. Stop that. Because when we take that kind of posture, even when we're well-intentioned, inevitably 
we will hold things over the head of those who don't see it or do it like we do. And then we become little camps, and little camps can often become little factions, little rivalries. We embitter one another. We get superior and self-righteous. We, we promote misunderstanding, and worst of all, condemnation, which is the very thing the book of Romans has taught God no longer holds over any of us. And so he's basically saying to us in this chapter, it's almost like an appendix on chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. This appendices here is almost uh, as if saying, well, then, then here's the areas where you're going to be tempted to hold condemnation over one another. Don't do it. You've got to practice love. Love wants the best for somebody. And when you have a strong conviction on something, you think that's the best. If I'm reading this passage right, verses like uh, verse 3 where it says God has welcomed him, the person who's, who's got a different take on it than you do. Verse 4, uh, it's before his own master he stands or falls. Verse 8, uh, we're the Lord's. Verse 10, we all stand before the judgment seat of God. If I'm reading this rightly, I hope I am, the implication of all this is that God loves each one of us no more, no less, and he loves all of us together. Meaning, that thing you get upset about because other Christians don't see it the same way that you do, be it church music, school choice, dating age, voting, approaches to counseling, on and on we could go. None of that is the basis of a Christian's justification before God. It may not be the matter of obedience to God that you've made it to be. I'm not saying none of it matters. I'm saying none of those things in and of themselves make the difference between obedience to God and disobedience. If God has left us room to sort some things out without his deciding it for us, the import of this passage is we don't need to try to be one another's Holy Spirit. As much as you can build friendships with people Across permissible differences in the church, do that because when you're doing that, you're seeking to be edified, you're seeking to edify and be easily edified. Second question, and these will go briefer. What can I learn from the person who differs from me? What can I learn? One of the things you can learn is something about the state of your own conviction. I don't commend comparing ourselves with others, but when you encounter someone in the body of Christ on the other side of a permissible difference from you, don't discount them until you've really considered where they're coming from because they may be right. Remember our text, verse 7, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. What's that saying? We're in community. God's ordering and arranging and we're not free to not be. God, through Scripture, has decided this for us. I'll tell you what I do in order to check my own dismissive tendencies, because if, if uh, among my significant flaws, and I've got uh, a, a nice-sized portion of those, one of them is I can be very dismissive with people with whom I disagree. I've struggled with this for years. And so uh, a way that I, I try to counteract that is I've tried to learn to say to someone who differs from me, you may be right. 
Now, I also think of that Billy Joel song. <laughs> you may be right, you know. I may be crazy. But it just may be a lunatic you're looking for. That's the lyric. Maybe that's who's given you your viewpoint, some Christian lunatic out there that you like. But I've found, I've found grains of truth along the way, even in viewpoints I've considered to be loonier points of view, people playing left field in the church. Not all differences are equal, I say again, but when I am differed with or when I am critiqued by someone who differs from me, even if the person differing from me comes at me poorly in the wrong spirit, there is usually still some truth in what they're saying to me, and I should consider it carefully before the Lord. Actually, I actually love that Billy Joel song because he, he ends the song with this repeated line, you may be wrong, but you may be right. You may be wrong, but you may be right. You may be wrong, but you may be right. If we could stop ourselves from reacting and practice listening and ask, not gotcha questions, but, but active listening questions. I hear you saying this. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I, I think that's how to honor people in the body with whom we have permissible differences. And, and maybe what even happens for you is a, is a friendship forms across a permissible difference with someone with, who doesn't harmonize with you on, on every note. I, I am still impressed by the deep friendship that uh, Supreme Court Justices uh, Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg had with one another. Of course, Scalia is, is with the Lord now. I, it's a re, their friendship was a rebuke to our country. Those two people, absolute polar opposites. I mean, there's probably some of you in the room think that Justice Ginsburg is Satan's bride. Okay. But Antonin Scalia, though he could not stand her legal reasoning, they had a, a deep and caring friendship and they sincerely loved one another. It's possible. Now, some might hear me saying, keep what you believe on matters of conscience, matters of privacy, to yourself. And I'm not saying that. I don't want to be heard saying that. So let me just direct it, directly address it. I don't think that way. But I will say this, if or when you make your case, someone, uh, you, th you think a brother or sister in Christ ought to look at this, ought to care more about this like you do, um, make room for this, reconsider this, come over to your side, your conviction, do the same as you do or don't do in this or that area of life, you can make your case. We can go to one another and debate these things. We can ask, why do you think that? How did you come to that conclusion? Why do, why do you hold this to be so important as you do? We can have that discussion, but if they don't bend your way, leave them alone about it. Don't keep bringing it up. That is an implication of what we're being taught here. Don't grind it in the ground. Don't keep churning it up. Don't, don't be the person who's known for one or two issues. That's, that's not being easily edified. That's being too particularized. Question three, how do I cope? We'll come to these questions again next week. How do I cope with those who differ from me? I'm going to start this. Next week we'll, we'll talk about another aspect. But, but this week I'm going to say, 
in how to cope with those who differ from me, you work on your own judgmental spirit first and foremost. You admit that you have one and you work on that. See, if you find that you need to win people over to your point of view, if you find that you need others to adapt their practice to yours on some permissible difference in order to feel comfortable around them, you've made it about you. And the body of Christ isn't about you. You're in on it fully and freely by what Jesus Christ is in, but the body of Christ is about Jesus and how we relate to him through one another. So don't, don't develop this interest in offering correction. I, I've seen some Christians through the years, thankfully fewer and farther in between, but some people who just get, they just become the, they want to be the conscience for the body of Christ. And it's pitiful. They have no friends. And, and I don't say that uh, coming down. I mean, it's, it's pitiful. Correction is needed among us, but it usually has to be done very carefully in the context of, of strong relationship. And it takes courage to offer correction even then, but to develop an unhealthy interest in offering correction, do you realize the responsibility for maintaining relational integrity according to this passage belongs to the one who has the stronger view? Do you see that? But what do we see in our fellowship sometimes? It's the ones with the strongest convictions who do the most alienating and pushing people away from themselves. They cope with those who differ from them by making them feel subpar, undiscerning. Here's a phrase you need to... Don't, don't say that anybody is dumbing down the church. That is the most insulting thing that we can say to people. You're not the paragon of wisdom or virtue. Nor am I. So I've tried to clean that one out. There were times in my arrogance where I would say, ah, it's just dumbing down the church. You know? It's like, like, what I'm, like I'm drunk at a party with my uh, arm around Jesus. Not that I've been drunk at a party. By the way, I saw First of Anners on my vacation. I was out in a river, and Calvin and Brenda Osier pull up in a Jeep. <laughs> and I said, I'm glad I wasn't smoking a joint. Uh, it's Colorado, you know. I don't smoke joints, but I was really glad I wasn't in that moment. Or sharing it with my 12-year-old son, who was fishing with me in that moment. You never know where you're going to see first of Anners. Beware, beware, beware. See, our, our Pharisaic, what God has done so often in me is exposed my own Pharisaic heart. If you think I'm hard on Pharisees, that's because I am one. Jesus opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what we're going to talk about next week in this context is developing convictional kindness. A phrase I got from Russell Moore. Convictional kindness. How do you hold strong opinions? And yet it's clear that, you know, you can tell me you love me, and then every other word is an insult. How is it clear that you love me? How is it clear that I love you, even though you know I differ from you? For now, I'm going to leave us with this. How did Jesus himself cope with we who differed from him? And our differences with him were severe. And the reason why is because we love our sin. And we go seeking from our sin in unrighteousness and self-righteousness what we won't seek from him. Took him to a cross. 
And that's how he coped with us who differed from him, through an amazing act of self-giving. He could have been our judge, but he became our savior. Now, he didn't separate the two. He is the judge who saves. But we take communion and fellowship with one another. And as we do, you ought to look around sometimes and notice the people around you who are taking communion. When we used to come up to the tables, that was the beauty of that, is that you could, you could look at other people. And it's not people watching. It's recognizing, you know what, everyone taking those communion, I see people who are different from me. I see people who don't have the same background, don't have the same beliefs, don't have the same choices. And yet those people are taking communion. And what that says is that God loves each one of us no more, no less than he loves all of us together. And so it's not my viewpoint on some matter of public concern or private devotion or theological debate that justifies me. It's Christ. It's that I've given as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of him who is for each and all of us, even those on the other side of permissible differences. I love the words of Psalm 139. Search us, O God. Let's make it our prayer as we go to communion. 